Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we do come before you this evening. We thank you so much for Wednesday nights as we get to gather and coin a knee with each other and study uh, your word and study all that you're doing in this world. We thank you for this privilege. Thank you for providing for us always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're, we're talking uh, uh, how the sin nature is affecting us personally. And then I'm going to segue after this into how the sin of others affects us. And that might take a little bit longer time. Um, And so, again, like we're talking about, how do I prepare for perilous times? How do I prepare for harder times in my life? Well, you have to shore up these areas in your life. Um, You have to make sure that you have dealt with these issues in your life. And you understand the sin nature. And you understand what it does to you. And then you understand how the sin of others affects you in your life. That's how you become prepared. That's how you become stronger in order to withstand storms in your life, okay? So one of the aspects that I'll finish off with is the sin nature and how it's affecting us. And the last time I said, basically, is you can't trust yourself. You can't trust your heart. You can't even trust your thinking sometimes because the sin nature will affect it. And so you have to bounce off your thinking, bounce your emotions off, bounce your, your uh, anything, you know, uh, your reasoning, your rationale off the scriptures in order to stay balanced. And if the scriptures don't attest to that, then you need to go to someone that knows the scriptures better than you and can then either affirm or confirm or or disaffirm what decisions you're making or saying, hey, that's not biblical or that is okay, go for it. And that's how you manage life. But if you do not manage life that way, the sin nature will make you make decisions. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to turn 50 in June and I can look back and I wish I could go back and tell myself not to make this decision, not to do that, not to do this, not to do this. I'm sure everyone in this room could say that. And, and why is it? Because when you look back and I, I, I process the decisions I made, I process through them and I, I see that my sin nature had a lot to do with the decision-making process. That I was doing things out of selfish desires, self-absorption, pride, you know, that kind of thing. Thinking I'm strong when I'm weak. Those kinds of decisions that I did. And uh, that's what you're learning uh, unfortunately, um, you learn it too late in life. And there's a great line. I was watching the, the natural the, the other night. You guys ever seen the natural great movie, great book. Actually, the book is better. It's always the book is better than the movie, but there's a great line in there. And, um, it's his old girlfriend that he used to date in high school before he went to the bigs. And she finally meets up with Roy Hobbs at the end. And he's in a hospital and uh, his stomach's having a problem because he has this old silver bullet that this one chick fired into him and killed him, and she's committed suicide. So it's the whole story of that. So anyway, now he's having stomach problems, and, and they're going to go to they're in the World Series, and the doctor says you can't play. Anyway, his old girlfriend from his high school years comes and visits him, and there's a famous line in there, and it's a great line. Uh, the, the author wrote a great line. 
And he was talking about the mistake he made with meeting this girl on a train, going to her hotel room where she ended up shooting him and committing suicide. And, uh, and she comes back and she says, you know, I think we live two lives. The life we learn with and the life we live with afterwards. And that's a good line. And you look at life and you're like, yeah, I learned that, I learned that. But now I'm stuck with that second part of my life that I live with. And, you, you know, and so you wish you could go back. But, but again, don't, don't, don't be discouraged because you get your life back a hundredfold. But there's definitely things you want to go back and say, I wish I could do different because of the sin nature acting up. And that's why this, this, this whole con- discussion about the sin nature is a big deal. You have to know how to deal with it and what, it, what proclivities it brings you to. So what it, what it does, as we've talked about, it affects your heart. And, and the problem with it affecting your heart is the heart is the center of you. And in your heart is there's where you believe. Okay, that's where your will is. That's where your emotions are. So the center of your being is your heart. And, and so that, it, that this sin nature can affect it. So that means that it can affect my belief. It will affect my emotions, so my emotions can get out of control, and it will affect my will, so I can make bad decisions. That's why it has to be harnessed. Anyway, um, when it expresses itself, it will express itself first in a desire, and then it will come out in a physical form. And what people think they can do is toy with the desires and think that they can corral the sin nature at the desire level. The problem is, you keep doing that, and you keep doing, and and you have these illicit desires, eventually you will not be able to constrain the illicit desire, and then it spills out in the street. Then it goes public. Then it goes physical. Okay? So, like I've told guys before... Um, you know, in my discipleship of guys, okay, I understand you have a problem with lust with women, but at the end of the day, if you continue to let this foster in you and you don't corral this, you will eventually spill out into the street. You will eventually do something. You will eventually be very flirtatious with women. And, and then we won't be able to trust you with women and then it will it, it just keep progressing down the line. And, and you, you realize, man, if that's not corralled, it can take you a long way. So we've had situations that I've seen in ministry where guys were in ministry and they, allowed, they let their lust get away from them. And eventually they're down in union hiring a prostitute. And that's what we talk about with the not corralling the sin nature and curtailing it and just thinking, I can deal with it, I can deal with it, I can deal with it. You can't on your own, obviously. you got to have God's power, God's help, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, koinonia, support groups, the whole, the whole package because that's how it spills out. And, and you know, when the person does it, they, they'll always say, I can't believe I did that. And I say to them in counseling, I can because I know where it started. And the problem is you think there's a missing gap here and there's not. 
It starts with a desire and you keep acting on that desire and you keep pushing the envelope and you get to the edge and then it starts spilling into the streets. And they can't control it once it spills into the streets. They can't control themselves. And unfortunately, that's what happens to a lot of people on any issue, on any given issue. Okay, If you have unforgiveness in your heart and you should forgive uh, vertically... Obviously, that's a command. I'm not talking about horizontal forgiveness. I'm talking about vertical, vertical forgiveness. And if you don't do that, well, then the, the root of bitterness sits in your heart. And you think you can, like, hide your anger. The problem is you can't. The anger, then, you will start wearing it on your sleeve, so to speak. And people will see that you're an angry person. And then what you'll notice is people are moving away from you. And people don't want to be around you. And people don't want to be friends with you because you have so much bitterness and anger. You think you're hiding it, but you can't because the sin nature is now spilling out into the streets. So it's a very dangerous thing. That's why like when we do the, the, the Lord's Supper, and from the Lord's Supper, you had the, the Passover where you washed your hands. Because in Jewish terminology, once the desire has conceived, you will act it out. And the main instruments, they would say how you act out your sin is through your hands. And so before you take the Passover, you wash your hands ceremonially to cleanse yourself from that unrighteous, spoke, uh, so, so to speak. And how we do that is the, the, the blood of Christ that cleanses us, obviously. But you can't hide it for very long. That's the problem with the sin nature. It cannot be hidden very long. Uh, and by the way, when you're younger, you can hide it better because you have more energy. But when you get older, like me, I can't hide my, my sin nature. It just spills out. And it's like, okay, uh, I don't have any anything uh, holding me back. And so be careful when you get older because nothing holds you back. You ever go to the, the, rest, the rest home and I'll see people and they've lost their inhibitions or anything like that. And they're just cussing the air blue, man. And it's like, all right, well, I, I get what's happening. There, there's no restraint anymore. There's just, it is what it is. But that's what happens, right? So what you have to understand in the sin nature, there's a three-step progression that happens to all of us. And the first step is sin consists, uh, consists of a sinful state. And so because of the sin nature, we exist in a sinful state, constantly okay it's with us constantly even though that's even though we're saved uh and that's the reason we stay in fellowship with the lord because in 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 first john 1 9 and 10 he talks about the blood of christ constantly cleansing us through fellowship forgiveness because we we exist in a sinful state and you say well brandon i didn't sin today well you did because you lied to everybody here um, but here's the thing about sin, though. It's not actually sometimes what you did, because you could go through your day and say, I didn't do anything sinful. But this is what catches most people. It's a sin of omission. It's what we omitted to do that we should have done. And then James calls that sin. If you knew to do right and you didn't, and you just were passive and say, ah, I'm not going to get involved, that's a sin. So you sin in commission and in uh, uh, uncommissioned you know so to speak um anyway once that's established which it's in everybody the sinful state becomes the basis for sinful habits okay it's not just sin they turn into sinful habits 
And here's what you have to understand. The way the brain, now know this, the way the brain works, that if you start doing something over and over again, it will move from the front of you thinking about it and how to think, do it. It will then move to the back of the brain and it will become automatic. So, for instance, in a positive thing, if you learn how to ride a bike and you know how to ride a bike, you've been on a bike and you've done it many times, that movement will go to the back of the brain. And so if you know how to ride a bike and get on a bike right now and start riding, and you don't have to think, okay, I've got to put the, my foot down, and then I've got to pedal here. You're not even thinking like that. It's automatic. Okay, the same is true with any sinful pattern you develop through time. It goes from this part to the back part to where it's automatic. What's the problem with that? Well, if I get under stress and I get under fatigue or whatever is bringing me down... I will go automatic. I will go to my default. And whatever my default is in there that gives me um, the ability to escape, the ability to be stress-free, the ability to go into fantasy world or whatever, that's what you'll automatically do. And we call that in the counseling world your sugar stick. Right? And you know... you. you you know what a sugar stick ride is, okay. And, and we use it proverbially for you will go to that which makes you feel good in order to escape the pain, the stress, the rejection, the whatever you're hitting. Instead of you going to the scriptures and using the tools God gives you to cope with life, you will use your default modes to cope with life. So... This is what happens is people learn to cope with life in a worldly way and then uh, it becomes automatic. And that's what they struggle with their entire Christian life because they don't know how to get that out of there. Well, how do you get it out of there? Here's the thing. You can't. This is what they have found through brain research. Once it's there, it's there. So what do you have to do? Well, Paul will say, you must renew your mind. What do we know now in studying this is that you have to create a different pathway and create another automatic response in a positive way, in a biblical way, because you're not going to get rid of this. So you have to use something new and create a new pathway in the brain to where this new one becomes automatic and that will then take over your response. And that's what the tools of God are showing you to do. So if you're feeling like I need to escape and I'm going to escape into fantasy land, I'm going to escape into pornography, I'm going to escape into alcohol, I'm going to escape into drugs, whatever. No, no. The new thing that you're taught by scripture is, no, you will escape into the scriptures. You will escape into the tools God gives you. You will escape into koinonia and the fellowship God brings you. And that will be the new sugar stick, which is the biblical one, that you have to make a habit and put it in the back of your brain. That's how you do it. Now, what we see now with brain research, that's exactly what scripture is telling you to do. Because you and I know both, all of us, our own proclivities, we know it's still back there. 
you know what your automatic is, don't you? If you don't, you're in trouble, right? But you got to know what your automatics are. Are you, have you reached a point in your walk with the Lord that you have a new automatic of how you respond to threats, to stress, to fatigue, all that? If you do, great. That's how you do it. You do it through the scriptures and through learning the Bible and finding out God's ways of coping. And God does give ways of coping. It's called faith. Okay? Faith. Faith. In whatever you, whatever you, your coping mechanism is through God will be trusting in something he says about you, about him, about reality, about others. That's where you will find the coping mechanism. And once you believe it, you don't have to go back to the coping mechanism because you have by faith the coping mechanism. And you will just tell, simply tell yourself the truth and it overrides the desire. Now, that's a, that's a long process. That's an overnight, it's not an overnight process. It takes years to get to that point. But talk to anyone that's had victory over those areas. You know, whether alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever it might be, when you talk to them, it was a very long process, but they got there. And it's very possible to have that victory. But you have to start the process. Okay, so then... It creates these sinful habits that you have to curtail. And then the sinful habits result in sinful deeds, obviously. And it, obviously, that's the physical physicality of the sin. Now, the, the thing about both the desire and the actual practicality of it, of actually committing the sin, actually brings forth death to you. Because the wages of sin is death. So when you commit sin, you, you are, are dying. Now, you can die in different parts of yourself. Like, for instance, you keep sinning against other people and wreaking havoc among other people because you can't curtail you know, something about you, your personality or whatever, and, or you, you're off the chain with people. And, and You keep burning those bridges. Guess what? You've killed your relationships. You have brought death to the relationships. Because of that sin. So it's even your attitudes and stuff like that with other people. But then physically too, you can do sins that are slowly killing you. And you're gonna, it's going to shorten your life. Or high risk sins. Like visiting prostitutes on union and getting a disease or something like that. Right? That's a high risk sin. You will die an early death. Right? Or whatever. Uh, you're abusing your liver through alcohol. Or you think, well, I'm going to smoke a little joint here, but it's laced with fentanyl and it kills you. Right? I mean, that's what's happening in our schools. Right? All these kids are on drugs. And so they're going to die an early death if they keep doing what they're doing. Uh, I, I, someone was telling me, can't remember who there was an apartment complex here in Bakersfield. And there were over, been a lot of overdoses, but there's, there must have been something that's going on in this apartment complex because they, like within a week or two, they've had like 12 ODs in this one apartment complex. And they're thinking that someone's selling some type of drug that's laced with something. Well, it brings death, right? Okay. So <clears throat> those are the things we have to be aware of that it, it will kill you. So, that, so when you read uh, like the book of James, for instance... Um, let me read it real quick so that so <clears throat> I remember the exact wording. And this is my big letter Bible that has a 25 inch font, and I still can't read it without glasses. Now, what does that tell you? 
Holy smokes. I'm, I'm 50 is right. That's what that means. Isn't it, 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 I hate getting old. Oh my gosh, I hate it. Oh. Yeah, thanks a lot. It'll get worse. Okay, let me see if I can find it here. I think I need Braille. Something. Okay, here we go. So so check this out what James says real quick. He goes, um, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. Now you think, well, he's not talking to me. Yes, he's talking to us. He's not talking to someone out there, uh, you know, on, on the street corner. He's talking to believers. So he's telling, hey, guys, you got to stop the filthiness. You got to stop the wickedness. Wow. And receive with meek, meekness the implanted word. Like, right, that's a coping abil- uh, skill is to go to the word and implant it into your heart. And why? And, and look what James says. If you will put aside the filthiness and weakness uh, and, and fi- filthiness and wickedness and then receive the implanted word into your heart, what, guess what will happen? Which is able to save your souls. Now, he's not talking about salvation, eternal salvation. The saving of a soul, when James is talking about, it should be translated, saving your physical life is really what it is. And then he'll back it up uh, and book in the cha- uh, chapter 5 in verse, I think, 20, 21, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, uh, verse 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner, talking about a believer being a sinner, from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And again, the death is not, not uh, the second death. The death he's talking about is physical death. So with James, as you can see, the bookends of James, chapter 1 and chapter 5, both say, if you continue in this wickedness and filthiness, you're going to die an early death. But if you stop it and let the word of God work in you by faith, it will stop a premature death for you. So that's what he's talking. He's not talking about, uh, we got a question right there. Go for it, man. Oh, okay. Are they here? <laughs> All right. Okay. So, so when you when you you realize this that when we do get involved in sin, it is slowly physically killing us. Um, that's not that's not what a lot of people think. They don't think it's affecting them. So right now, what we have in Christianity is called the hyper grace movement. Have you heard of that? The hyper-grace movement. And that means that we're all under grace, we're all under unconditional love, and uh, basically, um, if I do sin, nothing really is going to happen to me because it's all under grace, it's all under the blood of Christ. And so when I do sin, they, they have even people that say they don't confess, they don't have to confess their sins anymore. They don't have to ask for forgiveness because it's all under the blood. That is so antithetical to the Bible. I don't know where to start. 
But there, that, that is the movement now moving through Christianity that allows people, as you can see with the hyper-grace movement, the ability to sin without any consequence, or at least they think there's no consequences. Now, look, if a believer sins, they don't lose salvation. We know that. We, we believe in eternal security. It's what the Bible teaches. But if a believer sins, they will shorten their physical life. They can be disciplined by the Lord, and he can take their life early on too, right? And so there's a physical consequence to sin. So not every book of the Bible, when it says save a soul, is dealing with eternal salvation. When Jesus says, follow me, which is a rabbinic term for discipleship, not salvation. So when people will say, well, Jesus is saying follow him, that means salvation. It doesn't mean salvation at all. You don't know the Jewish background. It means follow me as a rabbi, follow me in my discipleship. And then he says, as you follow me, you must be willing to lose your life in order to gain life. Now, that's not talking about... I must be willing to sacrifice my life in order to inherit salvation. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about you must be willing to lose your physical life, the things of your physical life in this life, in order to gain, to gain the abundant life. And that's how it should be translated because it's tra- the Greek word is psyche. And it should be you must be willing to lose your physical life here or whatever, to whatever degree he asks you to, to, to uh, lose. And then you will gain the spiritual life, the abundant life. So it's not salvation. So that's what a lot, that'll change your thinking when you start looking at passages that it's not referring to salvation all the time. It's referring to sanctification and physical life. Okay, that being the case, let's move on. Um, I did all this. Oops. Oh yeah, one more thing here that I didn't touch on. So how is the sin nature given to each person it's passed on through conception so david will say in sin i was i was born okay which means that conception the sin nature was passed on to him and we typically think uh the theory is that the the uh, it is the father who passes on the sin nature um it's obvious with the messiah he didn't have an earthly father Messiah didn't have a sin nature, and that's primarily because they believe in Jewish uh, ideas that only the father has the seed, which would be the sperm, and it's the father who passes through the seed the sin nature. And so that you can see why the virgin birth would be required to make sure that Messiah would not be born with a sin nature, right? He'd be born sinless. So anyway... It's passed on. And anyway, um, since it's passed on, we still have the age of accountability. And the age of accountability, we call it as, as when someone can personally be responsible for their sins and understanding salvation. We don't know when that age is. It depends on God and the person. But that's why, you know, if a child passes away or a toddler or something, we would say that they would go to be with the Lord because they don't know the right hand from their left. They don't know that they're sinners. They don't know about salvation. They're just children. And so they would go to heaven because of, of not knowing that light. Okay, so when that, whenever that age is, that's between God and, and the child. But here's the thing. Even though the child is not condemned to etern- for 
eternal uh, punishment because they, haven't, they don't know what they're doing. But we still see infant death. We still see toddlers die, don't we? And why do they die? Because the, 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 we, we say the, the wages of sin is death. They have not committed a sin per se because they don't know what they're doing. But what, what killed them? What took their life? The sin nature. So even in, in the possession of a sin nature, it will cause one to die automatically. And that's why you see infants dying, and that's why you see toddlers dying until, the, until whatever the age of accountability is. Now, when uh, you're past the age of accountability and you die, well, it's not only the sin nature that's probably hurting you, but it's your own sin too. So it's a combination of the two. So that's why people don't understand, well, why do children die? Well, the prom- it's because of that. The promise, by the way, in the Messianic kingdom is no one will die until the age of 100. So apparently, it's not a complete removal of the curse, of the sin nature. But in the Messianic kingdom, Isaiah 65 says, the infant will die at 100 years old. And so... Um, there's not going to be any infant mortality or children mortality. The only mortality is if you don't get saved by the age of 100, you die at that point. That's the physical penalty of not accepting Christ in the Messianic kingdom. So he kind of reverses a little bit of the sin nature, how it affects children today. Um, anyway, it causes us to sin. And so when we are born, so to understand this, we're born... Um, and what we have is a body-soul unity, but our spirit is born dead because of the sin nature. So our spirit is dead. Every human being is born with a dead spirit because of the sin nature. Okay. Um, so, like I said, emotion, intellect, will is all, all in the soul. It's in the heart of the person in the soul. The spirit is that which relates to God from the human to God. And since we're born without that spirit being alive and we're born dead, spiritually speaking, then something must change in us. And that's where the term born again comes from. Now, the Jews had, the, had, had a way of being born again. They knew it, but they came up with different ideas. They actually came up with six different ways of being born again. And they were all wrong. And Jesus corrected Nicodemus and saying, no, no, no. The spirit has to make you born again. It has to regenerate you, Nicodemus. It's not these other things that you guys have decided. And, and so what happens at salvation is that dead spirit in you is quickened. It's made alive. It's born from above. It's born again. And now that born again spirit is in relationship to God. So that's part of being saved, is now you're back in relationship with God. If you do not get saved, that spirit never awakens. It stays dead inside of you, and you go into eternity. Now, does they, do, do, they, do unbelievers still possess an immaterial part of them? Yes, it's called the soul. That's why we're called a tripart being, soul, spirit, and body all together. Okay? But the sin nature affects and kills, basically, the spirit. And, and so that's why you must be born again in order to enter heaven. Okay. Um, the sin nature will then have dominion over the person until they're saved. And so it drives their motives, it drives their will, it drives their emotions till the day they die. When you're saved, 
your, your will and your emotions and your intellect are now detached from the sin nature, and now you, ha- you can make a choice between the new nature and the old nature. Okay, so you have a choice now. So you can decide what you're going to do is basically what God is saying. And that's why he says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overcome you um, that is not common to man. But when you are tempted, he has made a way of escape. So you won't be tempted, he says, beyond what you can bear. And you, so basically you can make a choice. Will I do it or will I not? To say that you couldn't help yourself is you lying to yourself and lying to Scripture. Anyway, what ends up happening with uh, people that are not born again, well, obviously they're not going to heaven. They can't enter the kingdom. But here's the thing. Any good work they do will not merit them any credibility with God. Now, they can be a philanthropist and do great things in the community and be like Oprah Winfrey and give everyone in, their, in their, the crowd a car or something like that. And they could be a great philanthropist. Well, great. They will get their name on a plaque and then in 20 years they'll be forgotten. But at the end of the day, none of the good works they do can merit any credibility to God in terms of salvation. Now, because everything they do is tainted with sin. With the sin nature, right? There's always a, a piece of the pie in what they're doing that's wrong or evil. Okay, so what's the point of a, a, an unbeliever being good? Well, if an unbeliever is like the garden variety pagan and he's just a good old boy across the street, what will happen is his lake of fire will be less severe versus like someone like Hitler, Right? So you have degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. To some, it will be intensely horrific. Others will have less intense. It'll be more tolerable in that sense. Not that that the lake of fire is tolerable, but I'm trying to explain degrees of tolerability, if you know what I mean. And, and so why, that's why we see the scriptures remarking that there's degrees of punishment in hell, just like there's degrees of rewards with believers. So God is even fair in the person's hell. If you were Hitler or Mussolini or whatever, Joe Biden, all those people, right? <laughs> Did I say that? I mean, I meant, uh, I meant Hitler. I, um, sorry. Um, they're, they're, the severity in hell will be equitable to how they lived, Right? And that even in that, God is fair on how, torment, how much torment they will have. Jesus said it this way. Some will be beaten with fewer blows and others will be beaten with more blows. To whom much is given, much will be required. Oh, yikes. Now let's move into the other arena. Okay, so that's about us. And uh, now we have to learn about others. So that we've learned about, you have to know the theology of God, theology of reality, theology of ourselves, and theology about others. And this is the, probably a hard one, okay? So we know what we do to ourselves, but one of the main things that we do is we do not respond correctly when people sin against us. That is the underlying issue for basically everybody in this room. And because we didn't react correctly when people sinned against us, it created problems in our own lives. So 
It's just not people just doing bad and then there's no, and that whatever they did stayed at that moment. It has ramifications down the line that affects us until the day we die, unless we, unless we deal with it. Okay? So the first thing that you'll see with a lot of people is that they're connecting or their bonding process was arrested growing up or in their 20s, or in their 30s, or in their 40s, or wherever. Because as, as, as we go through life, one of the fundamental things is how we deal with others. Okay? Now, when you're growing up, you don't have any say in who's raising you. You don't have any say in whose siblings that there are. You don't have any say what your parents do. And so you have the mercy of many times of your family, okay? Maybe you had a good family, maybe you didn't. Maybe it was kind of good, maybe it was kind of bad. I don't know. But anyway, the, the problem then becomes if people sinned against you in this area, then it will cause you to have a connecting problem and that you can't bond properly with people. Now, just a couple things about this. Let me give you some examples. How does the, my bonding and my connecting ability with other people, how is that affected? Well, first of all, you have to look back and see um, the people that were around you and close to you, were they accessible to you or inaccessible to you? Okay? And it could be something like this, that um, your, your, one of your uh, parents were accessible and the other one wasn't. Now, here's the thing. That, it, it may not be any parent's fault. Uh, one of the parents might have passed away and you just didn't have that other parent. And that, that's much needed in, in the family dynamic. You need both sets. And yes, things happen, unfortunately. And then you have to... Uh, go through the, the, the hard life of not having a parent available to you because of death. And that's not your fault. But if you don't learn that bonding issue that you missed, you're going to miss it for the rest of life. And you have to retrain yourself in that. Now, some, parent, some people's parents divorce. And that becomes a problem for the child because somebody's not accessible anymore. They're only accessible, you know, on the weekend or something like that. Or maybe you both, you lost both parents because both parents were just degenerate and, and uh, just fled the scene and abandoned the kids. And that's a lot of that happening, right? Um, and then they, the, they, they were without that. And then they go in the foster care system and it's just a nightmare in that system. And they don't have anybody that, they can, that is accessible emotionally for them. That they can go and, you know, and express themselves, talk about their lives, how they're feeling, what they're doing, what they're thinking. Well, if that's the case, what kind of individual do you get? You get an individual that can't connect with other adults later in life. And this affects how they live. And these people live a very lonely life, very lonely. And I feel bad for them because they don't want to work on the connectiveness. Now, why do you think they're inside of them? They want a connection, but there's another part of them that what? 
fears the connection and doesn't trust the connection because people weren't accessible to them. They're afraid that if they get a connection, that person will then distance themselves away. So because of their lack of trust and their, their fear of that, they don't ever connect. Another thing, people were, were abandoned um, or, uh, or it could be someone connected with us and then left us. They were here for a while, and then they left. Or someone came back and forth in our lives, which would cause inconsistencies in, in bonding and, set up and, and uh, connection, and would give us basically an unstable connection. And so I've talked to people in counseling, and a lot of times they said, I had this parent that came in and out of my life all the time. They would disappear for a couple years, and then we'd be back, they'd move back to Bakersfield and be here. And then they would go again on some uh, other thing and go work uh, in another state or whatever. Then they would come back. And so they had an inconsistent parent coming to them. Okay? Now, if this is happening in marriage, this is even harder. Okay? So if you marry somebody that's inaccessible they won't connect they won't bond that makes marriage a living nightmare okay because you can never you never can get down to the depth of that spouse because they won't let you and there's like a barrier and a wall and this is what the the common person in the counseling says well i just can't connect with him or her just she's there. She's aloof. Uh, and she's not. She seems disinterested in me, or he just seems disinterested in me. It's because the person has no ability to connect. Furthermore, if the person got unnecessary criticism, I mean, like I'm talking like mean spirited attacks. Okay, you're no good. You're nothing. You're never going to amount to anything. You're useless. All these kinds of things, okay? That's bad criticism. It's one thing for constructive criticism. Well, hey, you got this wrong on your math problem. You need to do better here. We need to figure this one out. Or you're in sports, and the reason you struck out is because of this. And that, that's constructive criticism. But mean-spirited criticism downs the person for who they are, not what they do. Okay? You know the difference. It attacks the personhood of the person rather than, you know, hey, um, you did wrong on that math problem. That's the work they're doing. That's fine. It's when you hit the person, person. Because what can they do? They can't do anything if they say, well, I just don't like you because I, I can't stand your personality. Well, what do you do when you tell a kid, I can't stand your personality? I don't know what to do with you. What is a kid going to do? Because he's born with a personality. Well, he goes into this non-bonding situation. He thinks his personality is actually bad. And therefore, that's the way he'll live his life. Versus, hey man, next time uh, when, when you're up to the plate, you might want to think about doing this with your hands and, and not getting stuck under, under your swing or whatever. Oh, okay, that's different, right? That's constructive criticism. But unfortunately, people don't know how to, how to differentiate that too, and they just go negative. And, oh, you'll never be anything. You'll never amount to anything. You're useless, that kind of junk. And then they were either physically or sexually or mentally abused. So obviously, this is going to destroy their trust with other people in their lives. Now, this is just one category, guys. This is just one category. This 
comes because people biblically do not know what to do when this is hitting them. Because when a lot of this hits them, they're either children, teenagers, or very, very immature Christians and do not know the truth that is accessible to them, the support that's accessible to them, and the help from the Bible and a church. So they suffer this way alone. So guess what? Then they're going to develop managing strategies to offset this. And can you see the managing strategies that it would pop up? How is someone going to deal with the pain when they were told by somebody, a coach, a teacher, a father, you're no good, you're not going to amount to anything? What do you do with the pain of that? You're going to find somewhere to get rid of that pain. So you're going to choose a poison that gets rid of that pain, won't you? Whatever that might be. What if you can't trust anybody? You're going to be alone. And people, quite frankly, are fine being alone. This, but this is the danger of being alone because if you're, you're a shepherd and you're in the flock of God and you're a sheep, the worst thing for you to be is isolated away from the flock because there's no protection out there from the wolves when you're by yourself. But people say, I just can't, I can't trust anybody, Brandon. I just can't. Tr-. Well, fine. You're going to get messed up royally on your own. You will be taken out by Satan because you're not with the flock. You're not with the shepherd either. And this is right, like tonight, this is the group. This is where you're best protected. You out on your own by yourself, you're asking for it. Okay? Let's move to, to category number two. And people didn't respect our boundaries as a person. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we had an online question. Okay, go ahead. It was, uh, how do I retain bonding or relearn, I guess? Relearn it? Okay. Um, the short answer, because it's a process, obviously, with uh, counseling. The short answer is you have to know, first off, how to trust the right people. Because what happens when you lose the ability to bond, you, you just do what we call a black and white world and you blanket and you say, I can't trust anybody. Okay, so you have to back off of that con- conception because that's wrong and realize who are the people I can trust. Okay, and you then have to take a risk. Okay, so first of all, you have to realize your people picker's messed up because you're always going to pick the wrong person if you're picking according to your pain. Okay, you're going to pick your people picker's messed up. That's just the way it is. So you have to be okay. So then, under the 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 help of a counselor, under the help of a mentor, under the help of uh, a Titus woman or a Paul and Timothy situation, that mentor then points out. This person is healthy. This person is healthy. Don't do anything with that one. Don't do anything with that one. And this person is healthy. Now, go and have a relationship and risk the relationship with the safe person. And what you will find out is, oh, I see. A safe person I can trust. Right. 
So that's what the experimentation has to, you have to start doing. Okay? First, you've got to have someone help you out picking out the right people, and then you start that relationship. But it's like what they've, it's with even uh, in, in the, the psychological world, what they've realized is how do you get someone over fear? It's real simple. It's called exposure. It's called exposure. And the simplest illustration is this. If you're afraid of snakes, what's the first thing they would start having you do? You start taking a risk, right? You start taking a risk. And the first thing you do is you go maybe to calm or whatever, and you go into the snake thing that they have. I don't know what that thing's called, uh, where snakes are. Um, you know that little section of the zoo that reptiles? Okay, you go into the reptile house. Okay, so if you're afraid of snakes, the first thing you're going to do is, can you go to the reptile house? Yeah, I can go to the reptile house. Can you walk through it and look at every snake without getting freaked out and running? That would be the first test. Okay, I did that. All right, great. The next time, we're going to increase the amount of time that you're in the snake house. So you're not going to just going to be in there five minutes. We're going to have you stay 20 minutes this time. And then we might increase it to 45 minutes, and then we'll increase it to an hour. Now, you good with an hour? Yeah, I can do an hour. Great. The next thing is we're going to have someone that handles the snakes come out, and you're going to be next to the snake, but you're not going to touch it. But you're going to stand right next to the guy, and the guy's going to have the snake in his hand. And then we progress, and then you're going to touch the top of the snake's head. And then after that, you're going to pet him, right? And then after that, we're going to let you hold him. And before you know it, exposure actually breaks the fear okay so it's by exposure so if the person is afraid of relationships the first thing i have to do as a counselor is expose them to a healthy person and say wasn't that okay you went and had coffee at starbucks but that's pretty good uh, a thing you went with uh, jim or you went with uh, anyone else in here and you went with uh, dennis and you went with scott to, to lunch how was that Oh, it's pretty good. I can trust those guys. Great. Do it again. Do it again to where you're comfortable enough with them and you can build trust. And, and so that's how you start getting out of that, that trap of being afraid to have relationships. I get it. The people pickers messed up. I get it. But you've got to have guidance. But if you say, I'm never going to do that again. I cannot trust anybody. You will stay in this prison of isolation, and you will die of loneliness. That's not how you were created. And the devil would love to see you die of loneliness because when we get you lonely, he says, then we can really mess you up in loneliness. Because when you're alone, then he can turn that fear into paranoia. And if you go paranoid, that means you start having mental illness. And if you have mental illness, then you're unusable because you will go off the deep end. In your paranoia. And I know people like this. I've counseled them. They won't leave their house. We had people so paranoid that I've counseled. They were afraid if they stepped outside that someone would rape them. That's someone living in fear. That's someone that's paranoid, right? So they stayed cocooned in their house and they would only go out when their husband came home and they would only go to the store if their husband escorted them to the grocery store. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, this woman won't even go out of her house thinking that she's going to get raped. Where did she get this mentality? Oh, paranoia, fear, isolation. That's the, the pattern that got her there. 
And so now it's almost a mental illness, or maybe it is a mental illness. I don't know. So boundaries. That's the short answer. Uh, anyway, uh, boundaries. So people didn't respect your boundaries as a person. Everybody has boundaries. You got to know where you begin and others begin. Okay, But being around other people, the way they're going to sin against you is disrespect your boundaries. Okay, And this could be small, this could be great. These are universal principles. Okay, So you could have had someone that had destructive control over you. Or tried to exert destructive control. Well, what do you mean? Well, someone would hurt me if I said no to them. They wouldn't respect my no. Have you ever been around somebody that won't take your no? That means that they're a bully in boundaries. If you say no, they should respect it. They shouldn't do, well, why aren't you coming? Everyone else is coming to the party. What's wrong with you? Don't you love me? Don't you love others? Are you that hateful that you won't come? Why don't you come? And then they'll guilt you for not coming. Well, so-and-so is going to be there, and they're looking forward to seeing you. You understand that, right? You're going to be hurting their feelings if you don't come. Why do they do that to you? Because they're a bully in boundaries. People who respect you, when you say no, say, cool. Maybe we'll catch you next time. That's a healthy person. But an unhealthy person will guilt you and will not respect your no. And then when you do say no, they'll make you feel guilty for it. Then what you start having to get people sending against you is passive-aggressive control. So in this situation, someone will threaten you and they'll threaten to leave you if you say no to them. Okay? This is what causes abandonment issues because they're constantly being threatened that if you do this to me, I will leave you. Whether that's their mom, whether it's their dad, whether that's their spouse. Okay? They're constantly threatened to abandon the person. So, how does the person respond? They get fearful of abandonment. Okay? When you have somebody that's afraid of abandonment, What do you think the other person can do to them if they're afraid that uh, we got to appease Caesar here? Uh, Anything you want, Caesar, because I don't want you to leave me. So if you want me to stand on my head and whistle Dixie, I'll do it. What starts happening in the relationship is you start having a parent-child relationship where the manipulator is dominating the one that's fearing to be abandoned. And the one that's fearing to be abandoned will do anything to maintain that relationship to the point of even sinning. They will sin for that person. And let me tell you some of the things I have heard. Sexual manipulation, money manipulation, you name it, I've heard it. And some of the things that these people get into are off the chart just to hopefully keep their degenerate husband or degenerate wife in relationship with them. I mean, even to the point of breaking the law, guys. Even to the point of doing the most devious sexual junk I have ever heard of. And they will do it. And the person just sits there being manipulated. 
As you're speaking here, this is a little tiny bit off of what you just said, but many times you see young mothers with young toddlers running all over the place. They say, fine, if you're not coming with me, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you. This applies. Am I correct? It could, yes. Yes, absolutely. If that's a a threatening thing, um, uh, it depends on the situation, but obviously... The, the kind of thing I'm talking about is more of on an adult level where the adult is um, using the threat of r- running away as a way of getting them to get the behavior correct. Now, if someone's doing that for a child, that's kind of manipulative. That would be probably wrong in that, obviously. Oh, yeah. If someone's doing that as a pattern, that's how they learn to manipulate people. And they will do it not only to a child, but they'll do it to everyone around them. Absolutely. So yeah, so um, um, that happens. That does happen. So this gets pretty scary. And and when I see this in a marriage, I'm like, oh wow, this is really really unhealthy um, because we got one that's turned into a slave, and one is the master, and it doesn't go well. Slave-master relationships and marriage. What else? They'll use guilt. Oops. Um, Guilt. So someone will send you guilt messages for you saying no to them. I don't want to do this. Well, you know, if you don't do this, you don't love me. Oh my gosh, that's like the typical line everyone says to manipulate somebody. If you, if you just, I guess you just don't love me. You just don't love me if you don't do this X, Y, and Z for me. Um, and this, this causes major manipulation. This is how the, the, you know, people manipulate each other is through guilt. Um, well, people are going to hell, I guess. If you don't come to church, I, I just a whole ton of people are going to go to hell. You know, that's kind of crazy stuff like that, right? And I, you know, remember this one old boy, this is a story from a fundamentalist church. And of course, this would be a story from a fundamentalist church. And I'm not talking about fundamentals of the faith. I'm talking about like women have to wear dresses and um, guys, um, three-piece suits or all that stuff and everything. The typical fundamentalism in in outward appearance. Anyway, um, in fundamentalism churches, they're very heavy-handed with their people. They're very controlling, very manipulative of their people, and they do a lot of it through guilt, okay? So this one old boy, they had a bus ministry, and they were running this bus, and this, this old boy was, uh, was one of the guys that drove the bus for, uh, oh gosh, he, he must have done it for 30 years or whatever. I mean, he's the old guy that just did it forever. So he gets to the point where it's his 50th anniversary and it's going to hit on Sunday. And so he goes to the fundamentalist pastor and says, hey, you know, um, me and my wife are thinking about taking off this next weekend. It's our 50th anniversary. And, uh, you know, we're going to, can I get a sub for, uh, for the bus ministry, you know, because I'm going to be gone. And the, now, mind you, he hasn't missed for 30 years driving a bus, Okay. This will be the first time he misses. You know what this fundamental pastor said to him? Well, fine, Dan. Then let all these kids go to hell. And you know what old Dan did? Okay, I'll come. 
That's how you manipulate somebody. That's called lording it over. That's called Nicolaitanism. And you see that a lot of times in in heavy-handed authoritarian churches where the guy won't even take off for his, uh, uh, you know, anniversary because he's guilted by the fundamentalist pastor. And you're like, oh, my gosh, that's sick, right? Yeah, I got a hand. Go ahead. Where am I at, Paul? Yeah, Pastor, do you think uh, the situation with COVID and the vaccines – the guilt was thrown to a super high level and government was using guilt and your own family can't see your grandchildren. Right. You nailed it, Paul. That's exactly how they manipulate it. I guess, Paul, you don't care about other people. I guess, I guess, you know, you want to kill grandma in the nursing homes and I guess you don't care about grandpa either. You just, why don't you just do like the Republicans do and just roll them off the cliff with a wheelchair? Cause I heard that one too. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, the guilt thing, Paul, the government used it tremendously. And even I've, I've been listening to his recent interviews with Fauci. The dude's doubling down. He will not. He said, this is best. We need to keep doing this. And oh my gosh, I can't take But you're right. Guilt as manipulation. Yes, doctor. We need to pray for our pastors. Uh, there's estimates that tw- up to 80% of pastors through the COVID thing use guilt for their members. And now are having second thoughts and we need to pray for these men. Amen. I, 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 gosh, you know, and, and these are the things you heard, I heard, and that, hey, man, this, I even heard people say, this is part of the gospel. Oh, oh, wait a second. You, wait a second. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. It doesn't include COVID vaccines. <laughs> Where did you get that at? But they would do that, or they would say, you know, this is part of loving your neighbor and all these other kinds of things. So, so Doc, you're totally right, man. And it was major manipulation. And I, I hope, I hope, and pray that these these men will repent of of that and realize that was a big error and admit it. But if they don't, I know what they'll do. They'll just keep doubling down. Because I'm I'm hearing some of them right now that that were confronted by it, and they still doubled down. They still doubled down. Well, this was the best thing for, and they just they go with the government line, and that's that's a scary thing. So yeah, pray for them because what's happening is, uh, as a sidebar, the state church is starting to form. The state church, you know what I mean by that? That they're going to follow everything the government tells them to do. So it's forming right now. Okay. Anyway, good point. Where am I at? Right there. Go ahead. Uh, we had another online question. It's uh, how do you get over abandonment issues? Okay. Well, it's kind of the same thing, you, how you get over the bonding thing. The two kind of go hand in hand. So the fear of abandonment, obviously, whether that was legitimate abandonment, okay, or manipulative abandonment. I'll leave you if you do this, Right? So you could have manipulative or physical abandonment, okay? What do you do? Well, the first thing you have to do is understand theologically that God says he won't abandon you. Okay, so that's the truth you have to start living by, by faith. I will never leave you or forsake you. So that's where you start the person off, okay? Now, what you'll see with people that have abandonment issues, they don't even trust God. They do not believe he's there for them. They have more of a, 
uh, a deist mindset about God that, yeah, we believe God exists, but he's not here for me, okay? And so um, what they end up doing is they distrust God. So that's the first thing that has to be reconciled is to get them back to trusting God. How do you do that? How do you get someone in to trust God in that area? What would you do? Tell them, we'll trust God. No, it's not that way. You have to take the person through their history with God. What do you mean? Well, the first thing you do is that let's start to the beginning. Now, we, we, let's say they, that their parents abandoned them or somebody abandoned them. Okay, so we, we know what the culprit is. But the issue then is they don't trust God. So my job is to show them in their history how God has always been there through the thick and thin. So I will take them back. Let's start back when you were first abandoned. Okay? And then I'll, and here's what you'll find uniquely that, that Satan has blinded them to. Satan has blinded them to what God was doing at the time. Okay? And my job and your job, if you're counseling somebody, is, well, let's go look. And, okay, what was the time of abandonment? Well, um, I, I just remember having a birthday. And it was my birthday that day. And neither of my parents remembered. And they just did their own thing. I didn't get a cake. I didn't get a happy birthday. Nothing. My parents actually forgot my birthday. And they just abandoned me on my birthday. And did their own thing. So I was there alone uh, on my birthday. And that was the first recollection, Brandon, I can remember of being abandoned. Okay. So tell me the scene. Well, I just remember sitting in my room. And I sat there and I cried. And I couldn't believe it. And uh, then, then what did you do? How long did you stay there? He goes, well, I stayed there a couple hours. And then uh, my my friend from across the street came over and asked me if I wanted to play. And so we went out and shot basketball and stuff like that. And I just hung out with him for the rest of the day. I said, you don't see it? You don't see it? They go, what? You don't see God, do you? What do you mean? I don't see God. Well, I go, if you think he's going to appear as a shaft of light in your room, you're wrong. That's not how you see God. I said, you were alone and you were hurting, weren't you? And your parents abandoned you on your birthday. But who did God send to go play with you that afternoon? I said, he never leaves you or forsake you. So in every situation you look at, that where you have the trauma, where you have the pain, I need you to start looking outwardly and seeing the bigger picture of where was God. And God was in inspiring that little boy to knock on your door and play with you the rest of the afternoon and shoot hoops. And you think right now it wasn't a big deal. I'm telling you that's how God proved he was with you, that he didn't leave you alone that day. He brought somebody to you. That's how he works. Oh, I didn't think of it that way. That's right, because the God of this world will blind you to seeing God in your pain and in your hurts and in your trauma. You're right. You couldn't see it. So now what do we have to do is I have to go through every episode with you, and we're going to walk through it, and we're going to see in every episode how God was there. And, and we go, and this takes a long time. It's not just one counseling thing. We go through step by step and we work through from the beginning all the way up until now. 
And guess what? When they see the whole panoply of history, they will see that God was always there with them. And it could be any issue. Well, I just don't trust God's first provision. All right, let's go back to when you didn't get provision. And then I have to open that door up and show them, let's look at the provision you did have. And then all of a sudden, they can't see, that which they can't see, they see. And they say, okay, you're right, God did provide there. Now let's go to the next one. Boom, there's God right there. Well, did you not see that? No. Okay. Here, boom, 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 boom. And what we're doing is exactly what the Bible's doing. The Bible is his record and history of how he works with human beings. Okay? He's proving himself that whether you're looking at Moses, whether you're looking at David, whether you're looking at Ruth, whether you're looking at Naomi, whoever, that God is always providing for his people and protecting his people and there for his people. It's a history of trust in him doing those things. That's what the Bible's about. So what you do is you say, this you need to read differently. You need to read it as a history book of God, whatever proclivity it is, I don't trust God's provision. Then read every passage with the eye of how does God provide in every situation. Okay? Read how he provides. Look at the children of Israel. How did he provide in the wilderness where there's no water? How did they provide for Israel when there's no food? It's evidence. So then what I do then is I take them through their own history with God. So you have this history, biblical history, and then you have the person's personal history. And you show them in their own history how God, what he does here, did in their personal life. And once they see it, faith ignites. And they're like, it wakes them, okay, so God has always been with you. Yeah, God has always provided. Yeah, God has always done that. Yes, right. Now you can see it. But you have to take the person through history. That's how you see it. So if you find yourself <clears throat> having some of these issues because of what people did to you, you go back in your history. So, so if I can get someone to trust God, once I get that step, then I can start with them getting to trust other people. But look, you're not going to trust other people if you don't trust the big, the, the big ticket item. If you don't trust God, how am I going to get you to trust a human being? Forget it. Because the, the, the human being is sinful. And you know that. But God is not. So I have to start with him, obviously, because God's holy and loving and just, and he won't do those things. I heard a story, interesting enough, um, and this, this is a bad example of, the, of, of not trusting God. But um, after the Holocaust, a certain group of Jews, and Elie Wiesel actually talks about this happening, that, 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 that a certain group of Jews actually put God on trial for the Holocaust. Did you ever hear that story? They put him on trial. They gave uh, God a, uh, a defense lawyer. They gave uh, witnesses, all kinds of stuff. And they actually had a trial of God. And that Jewish group, I'm not saying all the Jews, it's just this smaller Jewish group Declared, with, declared that God was guilty of breaking his covenant with the Jews. Now, you and I look at that and you're like, okay, I understand why they would do that with the Holocaust and I can, I can understand that. But here's what they're failing to understand. God says he's holy. God says he's good. God says he's loving. God says he's just. 
you, because of his nature, there's no way you can accuse God of wrongdoing. Because that goes against the definition of even what you Jews believe, even what we Christians believe. If you as a Christian believe God is wrong, God is bad, God didn't pony up when he should have, then you're accusing God of a wrongdoing or evil, and that makes that even blasphemous. So this group accused God of abandoning his covenant with Israel for the Holocaust. And obviously, that's saying that God does wrongdoing. So that's not the God of the Bible. And again, that wasn't all the Jews. It was a small group, but it isn't a story of how people can start indicting God for that. Okay, so how are they going to trust God from that point on? They're not. They're just not. If you accuse God of being guilty of going through the Holocaust and that he, he had evil intent for you, you're never going to trust him again, are you? And you're never going to trust anyone else either, by the way. So you work with the trust in God, and then once I can get trust in God in the person, and then we, we, we branch out to healthy people. That's the answer to that question. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.